your way this morning to the book of Daniel chapter 8. Daniel 8, Sunday mornings we've been making our way through the book of Daniel, excited to be doing that verse by verse. We continue this morning finding ourselves in Daniel chapter 8 and hoping uh, that you would be there with us. So that means hoping you got a Bible, you've made your way there, whether again physically, electronically, both work, but just be there so you see it. Hey, we give the same invitation for you online who are joining us now. Hey, grab a Bible. Don't just be there, but follow along with us, and we long that today God would meet us in the power of His Word. So would you join me right now? Let's ask Him for that. Let's take another moment in prayer. I'll lead, hoping you would pray that God would help you and I to hear what He would say to us today. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for speaking to us what we need. Thank You for truth. Now, Lord, would you help us? Would you cause us to understand? Would you work here and now in a way that your word is, is just clear to us and what you're wanting to say through it? God, we would hear. I ask that for each of us right now and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to talk to you about terrible horrible, no good, very bad days. Hey, some of you will recognize it right off the bat. That's a children's book, by the way, Alexander and his terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Some of you had it read to your kids, those kind of things. It's actually made into a movie a few years back that had nothing to do with the book, but nevertheless, hey, that's not the point. Um, but it's one since this story of just a really bad day. I thought I'd just read you a little bit from it, not the whole thing, as he describes his very bad day. Alexander begins it and says, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. When I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink where the water was running. I could tell. It was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. He goes on to say, in the carpool, Miss Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audrey and Elliot got seats by the window, too. I was being scrunched. I, I said I was being smushed, and if I didn't get a seat by the window, I was going to be carsick. No one even answered. I could tell. It was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Hey, you get the point of the story. He goes through his whole day about everything that's going wrong, and indeed, so many things were going wrong. He gets to the end of his day, and he ends it this way. He says, when I went to bed, Nick took the pillow back that he said I could keep, and the Mickey Mouse not light went out, burned out, and I bit my tongue. The cat wants to sleep with Anthony, not with me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. My mom says some days are just like that. <laughs> hey, in some ways, I just begin you with a children's story, but tell you, hey, that's the reality. We live in a world where there are terrible, no good, very bad days. It can be a part of seasons of history, and it certainly can be a part of days in our lives where we could look and just say, that was a stinky day. I mean, that was just so many things kind of rolled into that was wrong, and, and it can feel that way. And I want you to kind of begin with me that way, because in many ways, that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. Some terrible no good, very bad days. Days that God is going to describe for us here in Daniel chapter 8. Now let's just preface that with an honest statement. This is probably not going to be your favorite chapter of the Bible. 
This is probably not going to be your favorite message. You're like, oh, that's my favorite message. I'm just going to tell you, hey, I have no expectation of that. Nevertheless, it is something that God has given us. And through this window, he's going to describe history and cause us and help us to see that. It begins by letting us know that this is a vision that Daniel has. Begin with me there in verse 1. It says, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. So this is now Daniel's second vision that he's recording, ones that God gave to him specifically. First one was the one we talked about in our last chapter, in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 8 is now his second vision that God gives him of the future. Now, interestingly enough, it really is looking at the same span of history or a section of the same span of history that Daniel has already seen. Now, all by itself, that should be at least somewhat thought-provoking. Daniel's already seen this, why give us to us again? Well, it is different. And without having a lot of time to kind of walk you through it, Daniel 7 kind of overviewed history, but it was a very hopeful chapter. I mean, in many ways, because we, we highlighted the coming of Christ, we highlighted God dealing with sin in the world. There's a whole bunch of really cool just nuggets that were landed in chapter 7. Chapter 8 doesn't include any of those. If you can just understand it, it's as if you read it from beginning to end, and you would say, well, that was a terrible, horrible no good, very bad day. I mean, that's kind of the, I mean, that's the whole thing. Daniel ends the chapter, by the way, saying, this made me sick. <laughs> I was like sick to my stomach. I'm like, this is how the whole thing was. So now you're like, okay, can we just sneak out now, Jim? I mean, I understand, but hey, you're here, you're here, so give us a chance. But it is something that we need to see in one sense, both seeing it through Daniel's eyes, but also what God wants us to understand in our days, looking at these terrible, bad days. Well, with that in mind, let's do this. Let's read the whole vision that Daniel has at the outset, and I'm just going to ask you to follow along with me, but at the same time, do your best to engage your imagination, because this is a dream. This is a vision. As best as you can, try to picture what Daniel is seeing. Begin with me in verse 2. I saw in the vision, and so it happened, that while I was looking, I was in Shushan the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. As I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had, which had, I had seen standing, beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram, and he was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was none that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male goat became very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in the place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. 
Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew up to the host of heaven and cast down some of the host and trampled uh, and some of the stars to the ground and, and trampled them, and even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of the desolation and the giving both of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. It's a pretty crazy dream. I mean, Daniel has this wild dream. He sees all of this, and now he wants to understand what it is he just saw. And God is going to help him understand it and help us. It says, then it happened in verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meeting. He's like, I'm trying to figure this out. Like, what, what did I just see? He says, suddenly there stood before me, one having the appearance of a man. And I heard the man's voice between the banks of Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. It's a great place. Daniel's trying to figure this out. He's looking at these, this dream that he's seeing, which has some similarities to, again, Daniel 7, but different. Looking at it, some of the same places with different perspective, even different animals uh, kind of being represented by the things he's seeing. But one of the things I like is that God just speaks. He speaks here, and I just want you to hear him say, hey, make him understand. Make him understand. Now, I just want to say, Daniel's going to get some things given here, and what he's going to get, you're going to get, and I hope you understand as well. But I long that God would do that. I long that he would make us understand. It's also no, worth noting just very quickly that for Daniel, it's an angel. Gabriel steps into this moment. Gabriel, who is one of the presence angels listed in the Bible. In fact, interestingly enough, though there are a myriad of angels the Bible describes, we only have three names given in the entire Bible of any angels. One of them is Gabriel, one of them is Michael, and the third one is Lucifer, who is the fallen angel who becomes the devil. Gabriel, he's got this interesting kind of just role. He steps into this moment. He's going to help again later in Daniel. But many of us know him from kind of the birth of Christ, that Gabriel steps in to be a part of announcing the birth of Jesus, which is so much fun, but surely just a, a very powerful and an angel that is stepping into this moment. Well, he does. He steps into this moment to help Daniel, and Daniel needs some help. It says in verse 17, So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid. And I fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now as he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. The and he goes through and begins to describe it. 
Well, again, I just like this whole place that, that in this moment, I mean, Daniel's there, and it's almost just fun to imagine. I mean, he's trying to figure this out, but literally he becomes physically almost unable to step into this moment, almost falling into a sleep. Same thing happens in Daniel 9 for you Bible students. And Gabriel touches him. He, he touches him and says, I'm going to make you understand. And it's just a beautiful picture of that place. You know, we, we think about that. We just did it a moment ago. Almost every time before we move into a Bible study, we pause and we recognize like we need help. <laughs> we need supernatural enabling to make this understood. And I just want to tell you, it's always the case, but it's certainly the case here. And it's certainly going to be the case in this. And so I just gonna take one more moment and pray for it right now. Since it's going to happen, I'm going to ask it for you and I. God, you did it for Daniel. Do it here. Would you make us understand what it is you want us to see in the midst of this chapter? Help, Lord. Make us understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, again, I like it. Daniel's touched. He's brought into this moment where he can, where God meets him and awakens him to the understanding, and he begins to unpack for him, helping us understand and helping him understand what took place. Now, we want to do that. We're going to go through this. We're going to see this. And I just want to give it to you as a beginning. We're going to see four things very quickly. We're going to see four kingdoms, four things coming. We're going to see the Medo-Persian Empire. We're going to see the Grecian Empire. We're going to see in the Grecian Empire a man called Antiochus the fourth, And then we want to talk just a little bit about the Antichrist. So hang on with me. It's a lot of information, kind of quick, and it's got a lot more detail that you could go into that we'll not go into if you want to dive deeper. But for some of you, it's just, I already know, it's going to be a little bit overwhelming, so just strap in and let's try to figure out what it is we're going to see. Well, we begin by thinking about what Daniel's looking at. That was for him future, for us it's the past. And it begins with the Medo-Persian Empire, and he's there, and it actually tells us that he's transported, it would seem, to Shushan, or what is sometimes called Susa. It's about 200 miles away from Babylon. Daniel is probably taken here, you know, in a vision, taken over here to this city that's by, by a river. What makes that so significant is that's the future capital of the next empire. Daniel's in Babylon, which is where Babylon was the, the ruling power in the world at that point in time, but Medo-Persia is about to come on the scene. Probably within about 10 years, 15 years of this point in time, Medo-Persia is going to come and conquer, and it, slowly they're going to move the capital of the world over to Susa, and Daniel sees it. And you'll find it that way later. For some of you Bible students, you'll think of Esther and others. It's in Susa because that becomes kind of the new headquarters. So Daniel is transported there. He begins to see it. He sees it as a picture of, a, of this ram that's got these two horns, you know, huge horns, one that's higher than the other that, again, pictures the Medo-Persian Empire. And you might be saying, well, Jim, how do we know it pictures the Medo-Persian Empire? Because God says so. Go back to where it, just Gabriel's giving the, the explanation of it, verse 20. He says, the ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. Yeah, that's the next world governing empire coming on the scenes. This conglomeration of really two powers, the Persian coming up later, stronger, thus a higher horn as they step in to rule the world. Now, when it happens, they do so in a way that you just need to feel it because it says it a couple times in the text, both here and with the next empire, but you saw it there in verse 4. 
where he says, I see the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, which it did. For any historians you want to look, they never really moved east very much. They moved north, south, and west. No animal, no other nation, if you will, could withstand him, nor there was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will, and he became great. Yeah, the Medo-Persian Empire comes on the scene and it conquers the world in ways that are hard for me to take time to unpack for you. The world changes, not only because a new empire moves on the scene, but it radically changes in ways that just affect the rest of history in many ways. It becomes great. It becomes powerful. It becomes bigger than any other empire ever had that existed up to that point in time. 201 uh, just you know, square, 201 million square miles just covering the, the Medo-Persian Empire that just encompasses so many things, but radically changes the world. They became great. Now, God would do some good things in the midst of this, and some of you would know, and probably Daniel did as well, because Isaiah had prophesied that during the, the Medo-Persian Empire, Cyrus would come on the scene, that God said he named him before he was even there, and he would be a part of Israel returning to the land, which indeed actually happens. Israel, who's in Babylonian captivity right now, as Daniel sees this vision, Israel's going to go back into the land. He get a chance to see that, which is a, a good thing. But nevertheless, I'm hoping you're feeling it. Because the point of this, what Daniel's seeing, is not good. God doesn't even include that nugget here in Daniel chapter 8. The point of it is there's a story of the Medo-Persian Empire that conquers the world and nothing can stop it. Nothing can hinder it. No one can deliver. And if you were there, it is very likely you would say, hey, this is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Like, this is no fun. I mean, they just have actually changed everything. They've conquered. They've decimated. They've killed. They've, they've radically conquered the world, and it was a hard moment in history. Yet that moment would change because the next animal that comes on the scene, it's Greece. Greece that is, in that sense, this male goat that he pictures there in verse 5 of a, that moves swiftly. It's got this large horn. And one more time, we actually don't have to guess about it. We know what it is because Gabriel tells us. Go there in verse 21. He said, The male goat is the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn is between his eyes is the first king. He says, this is what it is. This is this kingdom that's coming that's going to be the Greek empire. Now, this is an amazing thing. I want to tell you how incredible God's prophecy is. You probably could have been there, and maybe in Daniel's day, somebody might have been able to guess that the Medo-Persian empire was going to be the next empire. When Daniel first has this vision, things are shifting. The world is beginning to shift. You know, you could have read the news in that day and think, you know, I could make a guess. And maybe, maybe somebody could have. Nobody could have predicted what was further on down the line. This is God telling us the future before it happened. And he's saying, hey, there's another empire coming. And it's going to be the Greek empire. It's going to be the empire that's going to come and it's going to control everything. One of the things that makes that empire so incredibly wild is how fast it happened. Yet, when you get this vision and Daniel sees this goat, he says he sees it as if, you know, he's there and he runs. It's as if you watch it, you know, moving as if its feet don't even touch the ground, conquering so fast. It's exactly what happened with Alexander. Alexander the, the great moves on the scene and at 20 years of age kind of begins to lead the, the, the Greek empire. And in 10 years, he conquers the world. By the time he's 30, 
he, he, he's absolutely just decimated across the land. The Greek empire, much larger now than the, Median, the Medo-Persian empire, and he controls all of it. It's a really radical scene. Dan, as, as Alexander the Great conquers that, you know, history tells us he gets to the end of it at, at, at 30 years of age, and he is in Babylon, and he just weeps because there's no more kingdoms to conquer. Pretty soon he dies, you know, in, in the midst of that. More on that in just a moment. Nevertheless, his power is an amazing thing. I mean, you, you could almost feel the way God describes it. There in verse 6, he described it as this furious power. He says, there, then he came, the ram having two horns, and which I'd seen standing beside him, and ran at him with furious power. I saw him confronting the ram, and he was moved with rage against him, attacked him, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but cast him to the ground and trampled him, and there was none that could deliver from his hand. Alexander the Great is this incredible man to almost study in history. In fact, he is still studied. He is a man who led this kind of plan, and he led, had, had military tactics that were amazing. He never lost a battle. Never lost a battle, conquers the world. People still study his strategies to this day. I mean, incredibly influential, but his, his anger, his furiosity, it, it's pictured here, and none could deliver out of his hand. God is telling us that that's going to happen before it happened. And it indeed happened just as God said. He grew very great. Verse 8, it says, Then the male goat, speaking of Greece, grew very great. Indeed it did. I mean, the Medo-Persian Empire changed things, changed politics primarily, changed the way the, the world would be run and administered. It changes radically on a world scale under the Medo-Persian Empire, but Greece literally transforms culture. It transforms everything so that you could fast forward, you know, hundreds of years and you would get to the days of Jesus and, and the days of the New Testament. And if you know this, your New Testament was written in what's called Koine Greek, the Greek language, because Alexander and the Greek Empire, they not only conquer the world, they transform it culturally, making the Greek language the language that would be spoken for, for just centuries and even influencing the world to this day. I mean, literally powerful, literally became an incredible just empire that controlled all of that. God's picturing that for him, but Alexander reaches the end of his life. Tells us there in verse 8 that male goat grew very great, but when he, that is kind of speaking of Alexander the Great, became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Yeah, Alexander dies. Uh, he dies, you know, probably in kind of a drunken depression, again, in some ways, because he didn't conquer the world, 32 years of age. And when he dies, he really didn't have anybody to pass the empire off on. I mean, his kid, he has, he has like one really young son, another one who's actually getting ready to be born, neither ever really amount to much. They're killed. There's nobody to pass the empire on to. And so when he's dying, he simply says, give it to the strong. And what ends up happening is his four main generals take and divide up the Grecian Empire. So it divides into four empires, the Cassander, Limaginitis, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. Each one of them take a fourth or a section of the Greece Empire and, and rule over it. And there's a lot of kind of politics and contentions and wars even between them, but that really is where it moves. Now, for some of you, this is like little 
almost like you remember. It's like, I kind of remember some of these things, Ptolemy, you know, and kind of remember the Seleucid Empire, maybe high school, maybe college kind of history. And again, this is history. <laughs> it really did happen. Much that you could read in the midst of it. And we're going to talk about it a little bit more later in Daniel, because Daniel's going to see more details of some of these battles. But right now, what's important for us is we want to focus in on one section of that. That that empire, in the midst of it, the Seleucid Empire, becomes the empire that controls the Middle East, controls you know, the sections over that that directly affect Israel. Notice with me verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. That speaking of this Seleucid Empire and, and what begins to move into that, and that transitions us to think not just about Greece, but about a man who we, history would call Antiochus IV that begins to move into that, and now prophetically God begins to speak of him before he ever gets there. In verse 23, when God's speaking of it, well, we'll just begin reading in verse 22 so we see the context. He says, As for the broken horn, and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when their transgressions have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. Antiochus comes to power, and he comes to power in a sinister scheme. He does so in a way that it is an amazing thing. I mean, as, as he does it, he gains his power, not because it's really deserving. He kills his brother, who is the rightful king of the Seleucid Empire. His brother's son, that then should inherit it, he ends up imprisoning. He ends up kind of stepping into her, bribing and cajoling, and, and just through flattery and bribery in a way that historians who look on this think there'd never been somebody who so finagled his way into power with such sinister and, and, and kind of wild schemes as Antiochus, but he does. He works his way into power and becomes the one who's ruling over all of this, but he does so not in his own strength. I mean, God's describing it. He says there in verse 24, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And it seems to be a reference that it's not a human power that's behind this, but a demonic, satanic power that would enable Antiochus to do what he does. He does that, and in so doing, he begins to do damage against God's people. Notice back in verse 10. It says, It grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host, and trampled the stars to the ground, stars to the ground and trampled them. Is this kind of visited picture that could affect even the heavenlies, but certainly is affecting godly people. In fact, that's how he describes it when he begins to interpret it there in verse 24. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully. He shall prosper and thrive and destroy the mighty and also the holy people. So as Antiochus comes on the scene, Israel becomes under his dominion. At first, they're kind of doing okay, but he begins to seek to try to bring them under his thumb and under the Grecian rule. One of the things he begins to do is to seek to kind of just deal with their kind of relation, their religion and, and the way they do that. So he steps into this and he comes in and removes Ananias, who is the high priest at that point in time. Kind of hist history would let us know that probably this was a godly man who was a Jewish you know, priest leading him in those days. Antiochus removes him and puts in his brother Jason because he gives him money. 
Jason bribes, uh, you know, kind of buys his way into power. Antiochus lets that happen for a little while until Jason's brother, uh, Melianus, gives him more money. And so he lets him come into power. And if you can just quickly feel it, it becomes destructive. I mean, this is, these people who were supposed to be God's representatives become those who it becomes power, money, and control. And they do that. Uh, not really having even the way to pay that, they begin to sell many of the, the, the holy items, some of the things that are around that whole place to try to pay the debt that they had. But, but it's as if the godly people are being thrust down and in their place, in their positions, uh, just Antiochus puts in these ungodly people, people that he can control, he can make there. And at the same moment, he begins to push himself forward. In verse 25, it says, "...through his cunning he shall cause deceit." To prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity, and shall even rise against the prince of princes. Wow. So Antiochus comes on the scene, he's kind of beginning to deal with this, but then he decides to make a, a whole different kind of gambit. That as he's moving, in, moving into this, he begins to call himself Antiochus Epiphanes. Is a title that he gives himself. Epiphany literally means manifest, or you know, it has the idea of illustrious. It is a claim that Antiochus is saying is, I'm God. I am God made manifest. I'm God in the flesh. Now, when God describes it here in Daniel 8, he says he's, he, he exalts himself even up against the prince of, of the host. You would know that, and I would know that as Jesus that he begins to exalt himself into the place that is the only place that God can occupy that is where Jesus is. But he moves himself into that whole place. He moves himself into a place where he seeks to break himself that whole thing. He actually changes their coins, uh, has them minted with his features on it, but puts the term theos over it, just saying he's God. And it was a horrible moment where he literally exalts himself to be God. Now, I don't even know if you can imagine that. I don't know if you can imagine what that's like. The Jews did not take kindly to this, by the way. Yes, there were some that just kind of, you know, fell under it and did whatever he did, but there's a whole revolt that happens, and they began giving just Antiochus a very different name. They called him Antiochus Epimenes, which literally means Antiochus the madman. Uh, that didn't go over well with Antiochus, by the way. And, and so, again, it kind of just moved into this incredible place where there was even more kind of conflict between him and uh, Israel and the things that are happening. So it lets us know that he moves into it, and he stops their sacrifices. Again, let's just read verse 11, just for context, since we were just noticing that. He exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, kind of a reference to Jesus. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. He kind of moves into this place where, he's, where he takes away all that's there, where he begins to, to, to cause all of that just to, to, be, to be moved into this, where the sacrifices are gone down, where, where truth is cast down, where, where all of this would be there. It goes on and says in verse you know, 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another said, How long will the vision be concerning the sacrifices and the transgression of desolation and the giving of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? Yeah, that's exactly what happens. So there is this animosity between Israel and Antiochus. He's trying to bring them under the Greek rule in his own mind. He's tried, in one sense, kind of corrupting their religion by putting his own man in power. Didn't really go overly well, so he decides to destroy. 
he sends in 20,000 of his men, kind of undercover, kind of into the midst of the city of Jerusalem, and he levels Jerusalem. He destroys it. They enter into on a Sabbath day, and they murder most of the men, most of the women, taking some of the children, just slaughtering throughout the city. And one of the worst, you know, kind of massacres that history really could record in many ways, so incredibly devastating as he moves into the midst of that. As he does that conquering, slaughtering any that won't bow to him, he makes his way to Jerusalem. There in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, he goes up, removes the altar, places an altar of Zeus in the place, and he slaughters a pig on December 14th, 168 uh, BC. Now, if you know anything about Jewish culture, this is like the worst thing you could do. Not only removing this, putting Zeus, this idol there, and slaughtering a pig, it's it's an in-your-face, just gesture against them. And so he stops the daily sacrifices. He stops them from doing any of that. He stops all of that, and it tells us he casts truth to the ground. He literally makes everything godly. Everything that God had prescribed for His people in the Old Testament, illegal. Having a copy of the Scriptures becomes a death penalty sentence. That just, if you you just have it, you die. If you, you know, circumcise one of your children, you die. If you practice the Sabbath, you die. And He makes anything that is everything and and just totally moves into an oppressive place walking, walking in this, and it terribly, it seems to work. Yeah, you watch this through, verse 25 says, through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many and their prosperity and even rise against the the princes. I mean, he's destroying. He's he's doing so in a way that that is working in a horrible way, just causing all of this to go just incredibly wrong. Now, he is going to come to an end. As it kind of describes this all for us, it tells us in verse 26 and the vision of the evenings and mornings which is told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days. Like, this is actually going to happen. In fact, the angel actually begins to explain it. You can go back to verse 13. It says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one who said, How long will this vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation and the giving of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he tells them again, For 2,300 days, and the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So he tells him exactly what's going to happen. He gives it to him in a, in a way that would, would help him understand what would happen, and it's exactly what did happen. We can look back on it with a hindsight and see, you know, this 2,300 days, well, it begins in 171 B.C. That's the day that when the, the very first high priest is removed and Antiochus begins to kind of put his thumb on Jerusalem. Again, he moves into that place where he desecrates the, the temple and, and does all of that. But if you could mark it 2,300 days later, you would find yourself on December 14th, 165 B.C. Now, you guys know your history, so I'm sure you know what happened on that day. I'm kidding. Um, but for some of you, you might. It was on that day that Judas Maccabee led a revolt known as the Maccabean Revolt that overthrows uh, Antiochus, pushes him out of Jerusalem, reestablishes the temple, rebegins to worship, set up worship, and much of that moves in, even into history. Some of you know, but right around our time where we celebrate Christmas, the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. Hanukkah is about that celebration. 
Hanukkah is about the time when the sacrifices were renewed, where it's cleansed. And there's kind of an incredible story that they didn't have enough oil to, to kind of keep the lamps burning. And God miraculously kind of causes that, and it becomes this just sign of His favor. And the Jews celebrate this restoration to this day, to this place where Antiochus would be driven out. He, that happens. Judas Maccabee kind of pushes him out, and Antiochus literally goes mad goes mad, makes his way back to Persia, and, and dies uh, in, in a horrible way, in a way that, again, it tells us in our text there in verse 25 that he will be broken without human means, and that's exactly what happened. Wow. Okay, you doing all right? You doing all right? I mean, I recognize that's like a lot of information. In fact, there's more information than I even gave you, but let's just be honest. All this exactly happened the way that God prescribed it. He's telling Daniel before it happens one of the most difficult and hard moments that the Jews would go through. It literally is. It finds itself high on the list of just incredible tragedies that would like itself, you know, for us, we would think about Nazi Germany and and all that happened there, and definitely the Holocaust, its horrendousness is there, but this is in the same category for a Jew. What Antiochus does, mind-numbing and destructive, and they know all of that. Well, that's helpful for us because we need to also understand that we're looking at not just history, but also into the future. Antiochus really did do all of this, but he foreshadows another one who's going to do this. And you probably picked up some of the wording that throughout this that God is telling Daniel, hey, these are the things that prescribe all the way to the end of days. Now, to answer this question, I want to begin just kind of quickly giving you something that's really technical that we can spend a bunch of time on, but just want to give it to you briefly. Prophecy, when God gives prophecy, there are times when one prophecy can have more than one fulfillment. What's sometimes called the dual fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It's a little bit confusing. It can be really hard for us Americans, but I just want you to quickly understand its truth. It might be helpful for me to come at it in a different direction. So the Old Testament will end, the book of Malachi, and it ends with the promise of Elijah coming back. Elijah coming back, who would begin the restoration of Israel. It became a hope that the Jews celebrate all the time. It's a part of the Passover celebration. It's a part of their lives celebrating Elijah coming, but Jesus came. And so the disciples are up there on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they're having a conversation with Jesus. And they ask him, they say, well, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Kind of quick understanding. Jesus is there, and no Elijah. I mean, so it's like, well, why, why were we expecting Elijah? If you're here, what, what's taking place? Jesus answers their question by saying, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. That's going to happen, Jesus says. Elijah is coming. He is going to come in the future, probably being one of the two witnesses out of the book of Revelation, being a part of what's going to happen in the future. That's still our future, But, Jesus says, I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished, and the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So just track with me for a moment. God says Elijah's coming before the coming of Christ, and Jesus says he came, and he's coming. He came in John the Baptist, and he's coming before I come back again. The same prophecy has two fulfillments, because Jesus came twice. So one prophecy kind of had a backwards and a forward fulfillment. Well, so does this thing about Antiochus. We know that because Jesus refers to it. In Matthew 24, 
Jesus says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. He says, when you see it, when you see the abomination of standing that Daniel spoke about, you're going to know it's the end times. Now, the abomination of desolation, that specific term, it's actually found uh, later in Daniel, in, in chapters 10 and 11, when it begins to unpack it, but it's also referred to in our text. Why don't you just notice it with me? Gives it to us down there in verse 13, right in the middle of it. It says, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices? And note it, the transgression of desolation. It's kind of the same phrase, abomination of desolation, transgression of desolation. So track with me for a moment. When Jesus is standing there, Antiochus, he's already happened. That had been, you know, 190 years uh, before this. Antiochus had come on the scene and did everything that Daniel prophesied he was going to do. The abomination of desolation happened. He put an altar of Zeus in the temple. He, you know, slaughters a pig. It's fulfilled. But Jesus says it's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. That, that what that man was wasn't just a historical figure in the past. He prefigured another man that we know of as the Antichrist. Now, we spent all of last week talking about that man, so I'm not going to spend a bunch of time except, saying, except to say, I just want to make sure you see the similarities. Both of them, both Antiochus and the Antichrist, rose to power through intrigue and influence. It's definitely Antiochus. His was just shockingly crazy. The Antichrist is going to do the same thing. Stuff we saw last week, politically, just finagling, tearing up nations to, to rise to power, he'll get there. Both of them are satanically empowered. Antiochus was, the Antichrist certainly will be. It tells us that specifically in Revelation 13, that Satan is going to empower this man to be a representation on the earth. Both of them exalt themselves as gods. Antiochus calls himself Antiochus Epiphanes, like I'm God made manifest. Revelation 13 lets us know that the Antichrist is going to cause the whole world to worship him. He's going to present himself as God in the flesh. Both of them persecute the Jewish people. I mean, in horrendous ways, Antiochus did it. The Antichrist is going to do it. His anger and wrath is going to be poured out on Jerusalem, uh, on the Jews, seeking to kill, seeking to slaughter in horrendous ways. And therefore, both of them do this thing called the abomination of desolation, where they step into the Temple Mount, they stop the sacrifices from happening, and exalt themselves to be God. Now, if this is, could even just, like, I know that for somebody this is going to be too much, but for one person, it might be helpful. Interesting thing, just quickly think about. So Daniel's getting this whole vision of what's going to happen with Antiochus. Interesting story, there's no temple. There's no temple in his day yet, and so he's getting a vision of the sacrifices being stopped when the, it, they haven't even restarted yet, but they're going to. Cyrus is going to uh, uh, allow them to go back. They're going to rebuild the temple. So Daniel gets this interesting perspective of, of the sacrifices being stopped. Interesting story, that's where you and I live. We live in this place where there's no temple. I mean, the Jews are back in the land, Israel's a nation, but they, the Temple Mount is given over to the Palestinian Authority. They don't have a sacrificial system happening there. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen, and the Antichrist is going to step into that, and on the Temple Mount, he's going to proclaim himself to be God. He's going to perform this place of exalting himself, putting up a statue of himself. It's going to be a horrendous place, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen again. Both of them kind of rise this. Both of them, in that sense, rise against Jesus. 
I mean, it's just this interesting thing when you're reading through this whole thing where he just tells us he's rising even against the prince of princes, that the, the Antiochus did this kind of presenting himself as Jesus. So is this Antichrist, and yet both of them are going to be defeated without human means. Antiochus, again, just dies. The Antichrist is going to be destroyed by Jesus coming back. But one of the things you just need to understand is it's going to happen again. Okay. Let's just pause for a moment. Before we try to figure out this, we just need to understand, hey, okay, here we are. We're watching through all of this stuff. We've seen media, Persia, Greece, Antiochus, and now the Antichrist. One of the things you just need to understand is if I haven't made it clear, though I'm trying desperately, these are not fun days. There's not anybody that's like, oh, that sounds great. Can we do that? We could sell tickets, you know. Let's, no, these are terrible, very bad, horrible days for God's people, horrible for history, watching just the desolation and, and, and horrible things that happened, and they're going to happen again. And that's the perspective that Daniel gets of the future, but interestingly enough, it's this future you get to see as well. I mean, much of this has already happened. I mean, we already saw the Medo-Persian Empire in Greece and Antiochus. Those are your history and mine. We could study it. It's already happened. But we're still getting a glimpse of what's to come. When Jesus is talking about it, right after he referred to the abomination of desolation in Matthew 24, he says, For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Can you hear Jesus speaking? Can you hear what he's trying to tell us? He's telling us the truth. He says it's going to get really bad. It's going to be so bad. Things are coming on the earth that are worse than anything that has ever happened. Now, quick FYI, I think, if you're a Christian, you might not be here that we're not appointed to those days of wrath, that those days get to happen, that we get raptured out of there, that's a really good news for us. But if you can grab it, it's terrible news for the world. And that's partly, I mean, if we really love the world like God loves the world, we can't be like, I'm so glad that's not me. We have to feel, hey, this is where our world is going. Now, maybe you already know this. Maybe I'm telling you things that are, are part of your DNA already, but I know that for somebody I'm not because you've bought into the lie of humanism. You've bought into the lie that, hey, we as mankind, we're getting better and better and better, and we're fixing things, and we would never do those kinds of things that people did before. We might even think back to the Nazi Holocaust of 80 years ago and be like, hey, so glad. We're, we are a more mature generation. We would not do I just want to tell you, it's not done yet. Our world is not getting better, it's getting worse. And as we look to the future, we're looking at times that Jesus said, hey, they are going to be, it's nothing that's ever happened is like this. Those days are going to be so short, it's going to be so bad, but we see it. We see it. I don't know if you see it. I don't know if I can help you to see it, but I'm telling you, biblically, that's the world in which we view. That's, it's not one of those fun things. It's not one of those things that we're excited about, but it's an honest view of the world. But not everybody has it. I don't know if it's helpful, but I'll just give it to you this way. I really love going to Israel, and I'm hoping that as this whole COVID thing passes, we'll get to go again. Some of you have gone with me. One of the places we go is to a mountain called Masada. 
Uh, it is an outpost that was the last outpost of the Jewish people in 70 AD when Titus Vespadian, the Roman army, comes on and slaughters through Israel, conquers, destroys. It's the last remaining outpost of, of Jewish insurgents, and they die, most of them taking their own life instead of being captured by the Romans. And it's this horrible, tragic, sad moment. Well, when you go to Masada, it is one of those places where you often kind of remember that. But now that Israel's a nation again, it's not uncommon that Israeli officers, they did certainly in the early days, some still today, they will go there on Masada, and there they'll make a pledge. On Masada, they'll simply say, never again. Like, this is never going to happen again. What Nazi Germany did to us, what Titus Vespasian did to us, we are never going to let it happen again. Now, again, I'm just kind of being honest with you. I go there in Masada, and I think it's going to happen again. I mean, this, this happened. It, it, you know, over and over, the world has had this place of, uh, of attack against God's people, whether it be the Romans or Antiochus or Adolf Hitler, and all of those are nothing compared to the man that's coming on the scenes. And I recognize that, that these are bad days for our world. These are bad days for that. And there's something about understanding just the progress of where our world is going to go. That has got to be part of the point of this. That's got to be part of what we're seeing as, as Daniel gets this kind of vision in, in Daniel chapter 8 that helps him see everything that was and, and is coming to kind of go that way and to gain that understanding. But if you feel it, you understand hey, this is not fun. This is a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's what we're looking at. So let's come at it from a different direction. Why did Daniel need to see this? Why do you need to understand this? God says he was going to give Daniel understanding, that the angel gave him understanding, that, that would be a part of this whole thing that would work there. What is it that you and I are meant to understand? Can I quickly just kind of challenge you with some thoughts? Um, and these are mine, so you can kind of take them. I think they're biblical, but at the same moment, you can kind of weigh them. Why do you need Daniel chapter 8? Why do I need Daniel chapter 8? Well, there are a number of things, but let me begin with this one. It's not to give us secrets. It's not so that Bible codes could be unpacked for us, that we could somehow understand history in intrinsic and in real ways. It's not that Daniel didn't know. When Daniel finishes this chapter, he doesn't understand when the Grecian army is coming or when Medo-Persia is coming. He doesn't have the dates. He doesn't have the, the layout of time. And that's not why it was given. Now, you might be saying, well, Jim, of course not. Why would we even think about it? Well, as I was studying it for this week, I found myself just kind of struck by the irony of it, that today is March 24th. You've probably know that. That's kind of our day. What you may not know is today is the anniversary that 178 years ago today was a time that history was radically impacted by Daniel chapter 8. What do you mean? Well, just quick story. William Miller is his name. He's a was a, a young man who had had a lot of terrible things happen in his life, and in 1923, he just began studying the Bible, just, just hard, I mean, just really kind of going in, trying to figure it out with a fine-tooth comb, and in his studies, in his eight-year study, he, think he felt like he came to some really solid conclusions, and one of them was from Daniel chapter 8. One of them was from Daniel, verse 14, where it talks about the 2,300 days. 
he really believed that that was not only for them, but was even going to just detail out the coming of Christ. It's not given anywhere in the passage, but he felt like it was maybe kind of given when Cyrus, you know, kind of sends the the Jews back. And so he kind of counted from that point in time, did a whole lot of math so that he decided and determined that the world was going to end on March 21st, 1843, 178 years ago today. He began trying to convince people. At first, it wasn't really gaining much traction, but the world was changing. The second great awakening was happening. People were so being moved to Christ, and some of the things began to move. And so he ended up running into a publisher that just kind of, you know, took him under his wing, and they began publishing pamphlets by the hundreds, by the thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, literally by the millions. That just just multiple pamphlets called Signs of the Times. In fact, eight other different kind of periodicals that would come out almost weekly, some given for children, some for women, some technical. And in this, he sought to unpack, you know, just these these visions of both in Daniel and Revelation and how specific he felt like they were and how you could kind of lock them down and just over and over concluding, hey, Jesus is coming back in 1843. I mean, this just moving the world. At first, it didn't take a lot of traction, but then it began. All across the United States and eventually around the world, a massive movement was impacted by this. It's titled in history, if you want to Google it later, don't do it now, Millerism uh, is, is what it's kind of called from this name, and, and he just influenced the world. So much so, again, on that day, March 21st, 1843, people were massively expecting Jesus to come. Many had quit their jobs sold everything, some dressed in white, standing on rooftops and and hilltops, waiting for Jesus to come, and you might imagine. March 21st, 1843 came, and it went, and it was pretty much a normal day. Really disappointing, he figured he'd done his math wrong, and they decided, well, no, it must be March 21st, 1844. Taking a pretty good hit from it, but they began to just recirculate their, their writings, got people all excited. March 21st, 1844 came and went, and Jesus didn't come back, and they were so disappointed, but one of the scholars stepped in and said, you know, you got it wrong. It has to happen in the fall. So they determined it was going to be October 24th of 1844, kind of put that all out, and March, October 24th came and went. I mean, you can probably imagine that. But what I need to tell you is how decimating it was, that that became what historically is known as the great disappointment. Again, you don't need to Google it right now, but if you are interested, hey, Google it later. Just the great, it, it, it shook the world because the world had so been impacted by this man. This, this disappointment that Jesus didn't come back when they thought he was going to come back, this disappointment in all of these, you know, just math and stuff that William Miller had done and people had got into it. Now, you would kind of think that that kind of disappointment would destroy a movement. Most of the time it does. Most of the time it does. There's been a number of people that have done that even in our generation this one didn't. Uh, they continued to kind of work, and, and so the, the, some of the kind of factions of Millerism continued moving, and they ended up kind of rebranding themselves and uh, really started what we know as the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Hey, this isn't a slam against everybody, Seventh-day Adventist. I'm not saying that they're not, some aren't believers. I'm just saying it was built on this, and it still is to this day. If you know anybody in that or you're in that yourself, you might know that they literally still teach today that the judgment of the world began on March 21st, 1843, because they're like, well, it had to happen because that's our, that's our math. And so they kind of have what they call the investigative judgment that started that day. But all that simply to say, it brought in incredible confusion. 
And that confusion is what bothers me the most right now. In that sense, telling you, I don't think that's what was ever intended by this. I think Jesus is incredibly clear. When Jesus says, hey, nobody knows the day or the hour. I mean, as I studied this out this week, it was just, I was hit afresh by how many times Jesus would say that. You know, he'd say, like, if somebody tells you, hey, go over here or go over there because the Messiah is there, don't do it. That happened. Millerism exploded, but it kind of created weird places. There were some that began to say that they were Jesus in the flesh, kind of, you know, weird spaces that just whole groups of people were led into deception. It was a broken, hard space. And all that I simply want to tell you is that wasn't the point. That's not how Daniel got it. I mean, you go to the end of the chapter and you see everything that's here and Daniel's responding. And he says in verse 27, I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Like that's kind of what Daniel did to him. He says, afterward I arose and went about the king's business, but I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. How can I say this more helpful? There's an arrogance that happens, and if somebody says that they understand Daniel chapter 8 better than Daniel did, the one that the angel said, I'm going to make you understand, I just want you to go, that's just a little bit no. I mean, I don't think that's, don't buy into it. Don't buy into the lies. Hey, this prophecy wasn't given for that kind of space where people would figure everything out and kind of have dates and figures and figure out when Jesus is going to come back because we don't get that. That's not what it's here for. Be rescued from that. Hey, understand, that's not why this was given. It wasn't given for us to know how long or when. That wasn't the point. So then what was the point of Daniel chapter 8? Well, my opinions. It's not so they could figure it out, but part of it was so they could just understand that God saw it. That part of the thing, one of the great things that happens on these terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days that happen in history and happen in our lives is this reality of understanding that God saw it. Hey, I can tell you historically, it helped a lot of them during Antiochus Epiphanes. It helped a lot of them to know that God had spoken it before it happened. But here's what I want you to know. There's power in that. There's power in understanding that God knows. He knows it in history, so he's able to describe some of the most horrendous days in human history, and he could have described them all. But one of the things that Daniel 8 lets you know is he knows. Now, it doesn't answer every question. And honestly, it might even create some questions. But here's what I want you to know. When you are in, when you know people are in, when you see times of history, and you say, hey, these are terrible, horrible, no good, very bad days. And there are terrible, no good, very bad, horrible days. There's something powerful about knowing that that didn't take God by surprise. There's something powerful about knowing that God saw it before it happened, that where you are did not surprise him, that where you are is something that God sees. That's what God communicates through Scripture. He's able to say, I know this is happening. I know it's going to happen. But not only does he know it's going to happen, part of it draws us to understand he's working. Yeah, he's the God that sees. He's the God that's working. Nowhere in this is Daniel asked to do anything. There's nothing he could do to bring in the medial Persian Empire or stop it. And nowhere are you asked to kind of create atmosphere for the Antichrist or stop it. 
That's not it at all. That's not really what, this isn't something that's in our power, but it is letting us know that he's doing it. In fact, he's doing it precisely. So you got this kind of weird thing where you have the angel asking, you know, how many days? And he's like, okay, it's going to happen for 2,300 days. And again, there's no way for us to walk that down and could have figured that out in advance, but there is something powerful in it. Because see, when you're going through a terrible, no good, very bad, horrible day, sometimes it feels like the world is broken. Sometimes it feels like the train has gone off the tracks. It feels like, okay, this is, this is just wrong, like the world is not going the right direction and, and, and everything is, is lost and what you need to know is that's not true. If you can see history through the lens of Daniel chapter 8, then it meets us in a way that reminds us there's a very precise timetable to this. I mean, if God wanted to, he could tell us how many days we have left. He knows. And, and he's handling history in a way that's perfect, and he's working. I mean, that's what the Bible tells us. He's working all things together for good to those who love him, that we get to see history and see a God who's faithful and a God who's able. But not only do we see him working, we see that there's an end. Yet part of this whole point of this is to understand that there really is a light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not a train. I mean, there really is, like, okay, we can look at how bad the world is, and we can look at how bad it's going to be, but over and over through the whole thing, there is this idea that it's going to end. I mean, that's kind of the question. That's why there in verse 13, the angel's like, you know, how long? I mean, how long do we have to go through this? How long is this going to be? And, and God is able to tell him, hey, it's going to happen for 2,300 days. There's a very specific place, and then it's going to end. And all the way through this, that's what he communicates. He communicates to us, hey, that these are the things and, and all of this is going to happen, but there's going to be an end of it. There's going to be a, a place of it. You look in verse 17, it says, so he came near where I stood and when he came, I was afraid and I fell on my face and he said, understand, son of man, this vision refers to the time of the end. It refers to the time of the end. There's a very specific time. There's a very specific spacing. There's a very specific way of that. There is the time of the end. And I just want to give it to you in maybe a very childlike fashion or way, but I hope it just lands. The end times are fascinating. Understanding the end times for some of you is a hobby. Others of you, you're like, it's so confusing. I mean, trying to figure out the Antichrist and how all this is going to happen. I mean, I know it's going to happen. But can we just take the term, the end times, and understand it's going to end? Like all the brokenness and all the sorrow and all the bad days and all the destruction, it's not going to be like this forever. This isn't going to go on forever and ever. There's an end to it. Jesus is going to come back. He's going to restore the world. There's a heaven and earth coming on the other side of it. And all by itself, that itself is life-giving as well. To come to a place and just to be able to end those days, say, I see it, I get it, to, to know that as you look at this, that's where we're going. And I want to tell you, I think that's some of what we're meant to understand. That when we think about all this happened, and I don't know if it made sense, I don't know if, we've, if I've helped you understand Daniel chapter 8, but I end it by saying, okay, there was something that was meant to be understood, and what was it? It wasn't that we totally figured it out, but we did know that God saw it, and we do know that God's working, and we do know there's an end. And I can tell you that's helpful in history, but those same lessons are the helpful things that carry you through your 
bad days. Then we have them. We have those days where we wake up on the wrong side of the bed and the whole world feels wrong. And sometimes there are seasons of life where we say, hey, this is terrible, horrible, no good, very bad. And you know what carries you through those days? Knowing that God sees you, knowing that he knows you, he knows everything you're going through, and he's working. <laughs> he, hasn't lo- he hasn't dropped the ball. He's working everything together for good, and there's an end to this. There's an end to this. There's a space that we're going to get on the other side of this, and, and there's joy in that. And I tell you, those things give us life and hope, and that's what I want to draw you to this morning. So we'll end there. So you can take your Bibles, notebooks, if you haven't already done so, and close them. We're going to take a moment and just pray, and I don't know where this has met you. I do want to say this, this world is bad, and it's getting worse, and it's going to get worse. But Jesus is rescuing. Uh, this world isn't going to fix itself, but Jesus is rescuing. And if you don't know him, today we call you to Jesus. He's the true king of kings. He's the true one made manifest in the flesh. Then God rescues. And if you don't know him, we invite you to him. But if you know him, maybe you just needed to see it. Not that you end it understanding it. Maybe you're like Daniel. I mean, I love the way this, the, that chapter ends. As Daniel's just there, he says, you know, uh, I, I, I was sick for days after this whole thing. And he says, I didn't understand. Nobody understood. And that, but that wasn't the key. It was a sense of feeling it, seeing it, understanding it. And I think there's something powerful in the same thing for you and I. So would you take a quick moment? Would you talk to God just for a second? I'll do the same thing. Is there something in this that God is speaking to you that you just needed to have? Would you talk to him about that for just a moment? I'll do that. And then we're going to close together in worship in prayer in just a second. But you take a moment and pray and I'll do the same. God, thank you for your truth. And even when it's hard to understand, even when it's describing for us some really hard days, like you described in Daniel chapter 8. Lord, I do rejoice that you are a God who knows. There's not anything happening or will happen that you don't see. And you're a God who's working, and you're a God who's going to bring it to an end. Into that hope, I pray that you would speak life into us today. Life and hope found in you. Pray for that now as we just thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, guys, why don't you stand? We're going to close in a final song of worship. If you need to talk to somebody, we'd love to do that. Kind of reach out to us after this. But right now, I just want to bless you in the name of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you